I'll invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. And pending everything else going as planned, we will make it through the entire chapter this morning. Uh, We did have some unexpected things happen this week. Uh, My little kitten, Penny, decided she wanted to knock over a glass of water onto my laptop. So that set us back a little bit. But we're here, and the laptop is actually working. So we're going to give it a shot. But if you see me close my laptop and transition over to paper this morning, you know exactly what happened. Revelation chapter 4. Let's read through this chapter together, and then we're going to go back through it in more detail. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So we have this vision of John, and he is experiencing these things. Back in Revelation 1 verse 2, um, it says, speaking of John, that he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. These aren't just voices in his head telling him to write this down. Uh, They're not dreams. They're not blurry visions that he's kind of trying to piece back together after the fact. These are experiences that he is experiencing. He beheld, that is, he perceived, and he became acquainted with the things that he wrote by experience. He was actually taken to heaven to witness some events unfold. And then he records the things that he saw and experienced. And by now, I'm hoping that we all know which verse 
Jesus gives John the outline of the book in. Do we know? It's in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus tells John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And by now, I'm sure you're getting tired of hearing this. But this is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. If we understand the things that he's seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, we can line that outline up with what John actually writes. In chapter 1, we have the vision that John saw of the glorified Christ. Those are the things that he saw. In chapters 2 and 3, Christ's letters to the church, um, and I think a timeline of church history tucked away inside of that, these are the things that are. That is, the church things. This is the age where John was living in and where we presently live in the church age. And then we come to chapter four. And the first two words we see in chapter four are what? After these things. After these things. This lines up with that last part of the outline that Jesus gave John. The things that take place after the church things. This section includes what most of us think of when we hear the name Revelation. This begins the future things. And here specifically, we have the throne room of heaven. In chapters 4 through 22, there are a few more divisions that can be made to help us guide our understanding of what we're going to be going through. Uh, We've got a little outline for you up on the screen Chapters 4 and 5 show the church in heaven with Christ. And that's what we'll begin looking at this morning and complete next week in chapter 5. Chapters 6 through 18 detail the events of the tribulation as they unfold on the earth. Chapter 19 shows the marriage of the Lamb and the return of Christ in judgment. Chapter 20 shows us the millennium, and chapters 21 and 22 are effectively the entrance into eternity. It's the unveiling of the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So follow along through that outline as we move through the rest of Revelation. And moving forward, I want us to pay special attention to where the events are taking place. This will also be a key to better understanding this book. And in chapters 4 and 5, we are familiarized with the setting in which John will be treated to his vision of the tribulation that happens on earth. And this setting that we're moving into is in heaven. John is allowed to witness the things that come upon the entire inhabited earth from heaven. This word throne is what we would call a revelation word. We see it 45 times in Revelation. 37 times it's speaking of the throne of God. And here in chapter 4, we hear the word used 13 times referring to the throne of God. 
In chapter 5, we'll see throne used five times referring to the throne of God. And in the rest of the New Testament, from Matthew to Jude, it's only used 15 times. So you have the majority of the usages of throne found in the book of Revelation. And we have a good number of them used in chapters 4 and 5. So as we move through chapter 4, this morning, we'll see John make note of seven distinct characteristics of the throne of God. And we've also got a graphic up there for you for the seven characteristics of the throne of God. First, we'll see the presence of the triune God. Then we'll see the 24 elders. And then the signs of judgment. And then the seven spirits of God. Then the sea of glass. Then the four living creatures. And finally, the heavenly worship of Christ. Let's start back into verse 1, and we'll look at this in a little more detail. Verse 1 reads, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And then he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. What a fitting picture of the rapture of the church. After the letters to the churches, John sees a door opened to heaven and a voice saying, come up here. Now, we're certainly not going to build doctrine off of this, but this beginning of chapter four seems like a reference to the rapture of the church. In a moment, John was caught up to heaven from the earth. He says, after these things, metatauta, after the church things, a door standing open in heaven. And I just kind of wonder what this door would have looked like. Would it have been a door like I think of a door? Or would it have been some kind of mysterious looking hole in the sky? Is it like a portal or something. What does this thing actually look like? He describes it as a door, but he's using the language that he has access to to describe what he's seeing. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. He says the voice was like a trumpet. He doesn't say that there was a trumpet being blown in my ear. The idea is that this voice is booming. It's a powerful voice. It commands respect and attention. It's as of a trumpet. I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. The first voice is a reference to that voice of Christ he heard in chapter 1. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. That's in chapter 1, verse 10. So verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. This word immediately doesn't mean in the blink of an eye. The blink of an eye is actually a relatively long amount of time. 
immediately is, this is, Chuck Missler says this, and I think he's probably right. He says that it's the twinkling of an eye. It's the amount of time that it takes light to pass through your lens. Now, if we think about that and how fast light is moving, that's an extremely short amount of time. In fact, I would say that it's probably the shortest amount of time. There's what's called a Planck length and Planck time. And these are the smallest units of this digital world. And I think that this immediately is referring to a Planck time. I believe it's 10 to the minus 43 seconds. That's a Planck time. Immediately, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He says, immediately I was in the spirit. This, I was in the spirit, doesn't contain a definite article in the Greek text. It would read, immediately I was in spirit. Okay, so that the is not found in the Greek. This seems to indicate that he was in a different realm of experience. And I said this almost word for word in chapter one when we were talking about John saying, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. There also, there's no definite article. I was in spirit on the Lord's day. Um, referring to a different realm of experience. This is the same phrase used here. And scholars are hotly debating the chapter one usage. But it's pretty much agreed upon uh, in this little snippet in chapter four that John was actually transported away from the earth somewhere else in spirit. And he had these experiences. So I'm not sure what the discrepancy is there. John uses the same phrase, and he'll use it at least a couple more times in the book. But there is that uh, contention there. I'll let you decide why. But it seems as if John is actually treated to a rapture-esque experience. And at the time of this experience, John was likely the last living apostle of Christ. And he would have been seen as more or less emblematic of the church as a whole. And based on this alone, I'm not saying anything more than it's an interesting picture of John being taken to heaven before he was shown the events of chapters 6 through 18 that outline the tribulation. It's an interesting picture. He says, and behold... So John is now calling attention to this throne that he sees in heaven. And not only the throne, but the one who sits on the throne. And I want you to keep in mind that he's describing this heavenly scene with all the vocabulary he has access to. And Greek was actually a very descriptive language. And this Koine era Greek that's used in the New Testament, is more descriptive than modern Greek. You have some extra ways to describe things in the Koine Greek. So I'm not saying that John was unsophisticated in his language. 
in many ways, he was more sophisticated than we are. But I am saying that even his descriptive language could not begin to accurately and completely describe the situation that he's been put in. He has been raptured up to heaven, and he is looking at the throne room of God Almighty. And he's trying to write with pen and paper that experience. It's nearly impossible, but I would say that he does a good job. And so we come into this description with that in mind. He's doing the best he can, but language as a whole falls short. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, he's not saying that God is a jasper or is a sardius stone. I don't want you going home and worshiping your precious stones. Okay, That's not what he's saying. He says, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. So he's pulling imagery from these stones. And I think it's likely that he's using these stones to describe the refractions of light that he was seeing. I don't know that he even actually saw stones themselves, but the colors of light that these stones would produce. Now, in Revelation 21.11, the jasper stone is described for us as being clear as crystal. So we can take that from another place in scripture, place it here. This jasper, we're saying, is clear. It would be like a diamond. And many scholars would actually put the jasper as our modern diamond. The sardius stone is a crimson red color. And we talked about that back when we were talking about the letter to Sardis. Um, This sardius stone is crimson red. So we have this diamond-like or diamond jasper stone and this bold red coming through of the sardius stone. Now, to what capacity did these colors flood the place? Did they streak out from the throne? Were they swirling around the throne? We'll have to wait and see. I don't know, but I can't wait to figure it out. But there is some significance to the fact that John used the jasper and the sardius stones to describe this picture. Tim LaHaye, the author of many books um, and a great Bible scholar, sees an allusion to all three persons of the Godhead here in verses 2 and 3. Immediately I was in spirit, as a reference to the Holy Spirit, pneuma, That's the word that's also used for Holy Spirit. This is the Father's throne that we're seeing. This is the throne of God. But we know that Jesus is there also. 
we know that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And you can make reference to Psalm 110.1 and Revelation 3.21. Now, since the Father cannot be seen by man, and the Holy Spirit is by nature spirit, Tim LaHaye concludes that John is looking upon and describing Jesus, the Son, on this throne, seated at the right hand of the Father. First, he is described with the imagery of the jasper and sardius stones, which together give the idea of his glory with the jasper and his sacrifice, the blood red of the sardius. And the well-studied Jewish Christian of the first century would read this and immediately realize that this is a reference to the breastplate of the high priest talked about in Exodus 28, specifically verses 17 through 21. And this breastplate contained precious stones, exactly 12 of them, one for every tribe of Israel. The breastplate had on those stones inscribed the names of each of the tribes of Israel. The sardius stone was the first on the breastplate. The jasper would have come last. So you have the first stone and the last stone. The tribal name on the sardius would have been Reuben, the tribe of Reuben. And the jasper would have had inscribed on it the name of Benjamin. Listen to this. Reuben means behold a son. And Benjamin means son of my right hand. Interesting reference to Christ in the stones that John uses to describe him. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, this rainbow isn't how we would view a rainbow from earth. This rainbow wraps all the way around the throne. It says it encircles the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, is this rainbow made up of different shades of green? Or is it made up of a lot of different spectrums of light, like we would generally think of a rainbow? I'm not sure, but I would lean towards thinking that it's you know shades of green because he describes it as an emerald. Um, also, the Greek word for rainbow here is iris, which can also be used to mean halo. So again, we have that the imagery of a circular rainbow, something encircling the throne. So I tend to think that John's description of this rainbow with an emerald-like appearance is describing this circular band of green light. Now, interesting, not drawing any conclusions. You got the red and the green and the throne room of God. Christmas colors? I don't know. I don't know. Regardless, this circular rainbow certainly does convey the eternality of Christ, this circle. But something different really stood out to me about this whole description of Jesus. The funny part is, it's not even what John says 
what he doesn't say that stands out to me. We don't find any anthropomorphic language used here by John. John's not describing him in terms of his human likeness. Daniel 7 does use this kind of language to describe God. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His hair and his clothes are described. But here, John only describes our Lord as a precious stone in appearance. Again, it's not that he is a stone, but he describes him as a stone. And this seems to convey a sense of permanency. And certainly in this context, we're supposed to see him as immovable and in control. Now, when I read this passage, I can't help but think not only of the throne of the universe, but all the little lesser thrones here on earth. There are so many thrones that people set themselves on. But as Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Think about that. He's the one that changes the times and the seasons, and he's the one that raises up and removes kings on earth. There's one throne with which we have to do. That is this throne that John is describing for us. And, you know, we see all of this craziness happening around us. Most of it coming from thrones. You know, the kings, the presidents of the world creating havoc. And we realize that God is in control of everything. His throne is above all the thrones here on earth. And I don't know why he does all of the things that he does, but I do know that he holds everything in his hands and everything that happens passes through checks and balances with this throne in heaven. He is absolutely sovereign. But it does bring some questions up in our minds. And I don't have all the answers to those questions. But I think that Paul probably had some of the same questions in his mind. I want you to remember that Paul lived during the reign of Emperor Nero. This would have been right before that Smyrna era church that we talked about last week. Nero wasn't exactly a great guy. Um, He burned Christians to light his garden. Yet, Paul wrote in Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Wow. Paul wrote that after Nero had been in power for a few years already. So he would have known the extent of Nero's craze. He would have known the evil that this man was perpetuating. But it's surprising that Paul, 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, still commands that people submit to their earthly governments. I think there was a realization, no doubt, in Paul's mind that the thrones of the world were all subject to one throne, and that's this throne. And I think that we can tend to be startled by the fact that Paul wrote this under persecution. But, well, if Paul knew what kind of insanity our government is perpetuating, he wouldn't have written that. Well, no, he he would have because his government was worse. It was. It was worse. It doesn't matter who you like, you know, president-wise. In the last handful of years, someone has taken office in our country that you didn't think was fit to be in that office, no matter which side you're on. But even in all of this insanity, I can find comfort in knowing that there's one king who's actually in control, and there's only one who raises and removes the kings of the world. There was no throne election, not in God's eyes. Everyone who is in power is there by design. We see these governments starting to coalesce. We see things like cryptocurrency coming in, kind of bringing everyone together. We see some treaties being made. These are all things that we expect to see under the government of the Antichrist. And if you believe that the rapture is the next prophetic event, that means the rapture is even closer than this coming together of a one-world government. That means we're close. We don't have much longer. Things are starting to move. So we should be approaching this passage with that in mind. We serve the king of the universe. There is none above him. And this is who we pray to. This is who sent his Holy Spirit to earth to guide us. This is the one who loved us enough to die for us in our place. This is the king of the universe. Now let's look at verse 4. In verse 4, we're introduced to a group called the 24 elders. It reads, around the throne were 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. We will see this group referred to throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. And there's some controversy surrounding the identity of these 24 elders. Personally, I think they identify themselves in chapter 5, but we'll get there. Some very competent teachers think that these elders are angels, but I don't think that that can be the case for a couple of reasons. First, there are certain passages that speak of the elders, the angels, and the four living creatures separately. They denote between those three groups. For example, Revelation 7.11 reads, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders 
and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Secondly, we'll hear the elders singing a new song to the Lamb in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. They're speaking of Jesus when they sing, And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is why I say they identify themselves. They're singing this song about being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Angels have not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Man has. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Angels have not been made to be kings and priests to God. Man has been. So I think that these elders are representative of you and I. And we'll see more reasons for this line of thinking as we move along. The only other time we see the number 24 in the Bible is when David organized the Levitical priesthood into 24 courses. And we find this in 1 Chronicles 24, verses 1 through 19. Each of these courses of Levites would serve in the temple for one week so they could rotate on and off duty. And there were leaders appointed in each of these courses. So 24 courses equals 24 leaders of these courses. So when the leaders of the 24 courses would meet, they would represent the entire priesthood. By the way, there are about 24,000 priests. So I think that we can take the position that these 24 elders are representative of the redeemed of God. That is you and I. It says they were clothed in white robes and had crowns of gold on their head. Jesus promises white robes and crowns to believers in his letters to the churches. Among other places, you know, we find crowns being referenced, a crown of righteousness, crown of life, crown of rejoicing. Those are all found in the New Testament, and they are spoken of in relation to believers, not to angels. We know that in heaven, we will be clothed in white, representing our righteousness before God. We have been washed clean and wear white. Now, there's another view that I would consider plausible, but I still prefer this previous view that we've talked about. The 24 elders are made up of the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles. Okay, this is that second view. But if John saw himself as one of the elders, I think that he would have said so in his writing. I think he would have pointed it out. He loves to write about himself in the third person. And I want to take you real quick to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. This is an example of John speaking about himself in the third person. It says in chapter 20, 
Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That refers to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. Again, the other disciple referring to John. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. So among everything that's happening here, John wants you to know that he was faster than Peter. And he says it again a couple verses later. Verse 8, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also. So I, I think that is hilarious. And we see kind of John's personality coming out in that. But I think that if John were to see his face on one of these elders in heaven, that he would have said so. And I think that he would have had no problem doing that. So verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. These lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Thunder and lightning have long been seen as emblematic of judgment. These are signs of judgment, and that would be applicable here. This scene is set right before the judgment of the tribulation would begin. We will also see a few more times in Revelation where thunder and lightning are mentioned throughout this time period of the tribulation. These are emblematic of judgment. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, I'm glad that John identifies these lamps for us. These lamps of fire, he says, are the seven spirits of God. We might be tempted to take these lampstands that we saw in chapter 1, that we know are explained as representative of the churches. We might be tempted to take those as being these lamps of fire. But I don't think that that is the case. And while that view would be an incredible support of a pre-tribulation rapture, I really can't justify making these lamps of fire into the church. John says very plainly that they are the seven spirits of God. Also, different wording is used for these lamps of fire than was used for the lampstands in chapter 1. The lampstands were fueled by oil, which we know represents the Holy Spirit. But these lamps of fire are more like torches. They don't need to be fueled by the oil, uh, but they burn perpetually, more like torches. The seven spirits of God are more accurately the seven characteristics of the one Holy Spirit. Most commentators point to Isaiah 11.2 to explain these seven characteristics, and these characteristics are the Spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, 
the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. These are the seven characteristics that characterize the single Holy Spirit. And that's the best explanation that I have for you. There's a lot of questions surrounding this verse. That's the best I got. So do your homework. Come up with something that you think. Um, You may even land back where I've landed. Verse 6 says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. This sea of glass like crystal. In the tabernacle's court, what did you see once you got past that brazen altar and before you made it to the tabernacle proper? What was in between those two structures? It was the bronze laver. It was a wash bowl. It would be filled with water, and the priests would wash themselves there before they entered the tabernacle to serve God. There was also... A similar instrument constructed for Solomon's temple for the same purpose. We know that the tabernacle and the temple are both representative of the throne room of God in heaven. And in Ephesians 5.26, Paul says that we are cleansed with the washing of water by the word. So the word of God currently washes us. But in heaven, this sea is still. It looks like glass. And in Revelation 15, the tribulation saints who have been martyred stand on this sea of glass. Now, I don't know whether the sea is actually water, actually glass, or actually crystal, but I do know that the laws of physics are going to be a little different up there. So I have no problem thinking that it's water and the saints are standing on it. I have no problem accepting that, Uh, but it could be glass or crystal. I'm not sure. Now, being an angler, a fisherman, and having spent a considerable amount of time on the water, mind you, in a boat, not standing on it, uh, I am familiar with this term of glass, saying that the sea looks like glass. If we get out there early in the morning, as the sun is just starting to rise, there's no wind blowing yet. The sea, or the lake in my case, is completely still. There's no kind of ripple. The water actually looks like a reflection of the sky above it. It's a beautiful sight. This water as still as glass. Now, if you're washing dishes in a full sink of water, that water is turbulent. It's moving around, splashing. I splash water on myself all the time when I'm doing dishes. It's not still. But there's no washing happening in heaven. The water can remain still. The washing has already taken place. Now the saints are standing on the water that was used for washing. Mind this as well. Washing by the water of the word. This water 
I think is representing the word of God. We are currently being washed by the word of God. You ever have a bad day? You get home. In your wisdom, you decide, let me open my Bible. That'll make this better. You open it up and it feels like you are actually being washed of that bad day. It's cleansing you. It's actually doing something to you. We're being washed by the word currently, but in heaven, we stand on the word. We stand on it. All the washing has already taken place, but we stand on the word of God. What a neat picture that is, just tucked away in this description of the throne room. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And it is actually unfortunate that some translations call these things beasts because there's a bit of a negative connotation with the word beast, especially in reference to Revelation. Now, these four living creatures are very distinct and separate from the beast that we'll see arise on earth during the tribulation. Do not confuse these two groups. The New King James Version does a good job of translating the word for beast, zoo, where we get zoo. The New King James gives it the term living creatures. And that's much more neutral and much more true to what the, the actual Greek word would mean. And there's an entirely different um, word used for the beast that rises up, takes control of the nations. That's a completely different word. It means ravenous beast. Um, but this is just a living creature. And we see these four described And this description is a bit startling to us because we don't know anything like it. He says they were full of eyes in front and in back. And a couple verses down, or the next verse, he says they were full of eyes around and within. What does that look like? No, I have no clue. But we have these four appearances of these beasts specified by John in verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And that flying eagle actually denotes an eagle in motion. It's not a static eagle perched on a branch, but it says that he he appears like a flying eagle. Now, We have these four appearances described by John. And it turns out that these four creatures correspond to the camps of Israel as they would have been situated around the tabernacle. We know the tabernacle is representative of the throne of God. I'm only going to skim over this, and we're going to do so fairly quickly, but it's a fascinating study for you to undertake sometime. And if you would like to, Chuck Messler goes into detail about how this picture is derived from Numbers 2 in his commentary on Revelation 4 and 5. He also talks about it um, with more of an emphasis toward the camp of Israel. 
in his 24 Hours Through the Bible series. Um, and those of you who made it on Thursday night were treated to this explanation from Dr. Missler, and that was pretty cool. But basically, each tribe of Israel had a different symbol that was associated with it. And around the tabernacle were four camps that the nation was split up into. Each of these camps contained three tribes, and there was one tribe that led each camp, so to speak. And I've got another list for you up on the screen. Judah had the emblem of a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, from which Jesus came. They were situated on the east of the tabernacle. Ephraim was, you know, symbolized by an ox. And we see in Revelation, the calf. That would be a similar thing. Reuben was symbolized with a man, and that was on the south of the tabernacle. Dan is symbolized with the eagle to the north of the tabernacle. And the Jews only camped towards the cardinal directions, and they only spread their camps out as wide as the camp of the Levites, who were camped directly around the tabernacle. So Numbers 2 gives us the populations of each of these tribes, and when extrapolated out, their camps would create the image of a cross when viewed from above. And on each of the four sides, a flag would have been flown with the image of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. This is rich imagery relating to God's throne room. These four living creatures surrounding the throne. It seems that there is nothing in the Bible there by accident. Even in these populations of the tribes of Israel. Something that, no doubt, I'm sure most of the people in this room have skipped over before when reading through, and I don't blame you. It's tough to get through those. You wake up early in the morning, crack open your Bible, oh, it's Numbers 2 today. Going straight to Numbers 3. You know, I don't, I don't blame you for that, but with a little bit of digging and a little bit of study, we see some amazing things pop out at us. Now, verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There is no end to the song of these creatures. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist 
and were created. These last few verses, 9 through 11, really run together. Um, It's giving you a scene of what John is seeing in heaven. He says, when the creatures give glory, that's our cue to fall down and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast our crowns before his throne. And I want you to pay attention to what the elders say and what they do. They say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. There's this realization that everything they have is because of the Lamb. Everything they have been entitled to, their crowns, their white robes, even down to their very place in heaven, is only attributable to the Lamb, not to themselves. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. If it weren't for him, none of them would have even existed, and they cast their crowns at his throne. All they have is his. All things were created through him and for him. We see in Colossians 1.16. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Everything that we have, down to our very place on the earth, is given to us by the sovereignty of God. It's a gift. You know, we see these crowns, they're rewards. The crowns are rewards for things that you do during your life. Salvation is a gift. This, these are distinct from each other. The gift and the rewards are distinct. You don't have to do anything to earn a gift. You do have to earn your reward. Christ has extended to each one of us a gift of salvation, that we should just take it and we can spend eternity with him. The rewards are for things that we do. We earn the rewards. We are given the gift of salvation. And so when I get to heaven, I don't want to be the one standing there with a little helicopter hat. I want to have crowns. I want to run the race well. And I want to finish faithfully. And I pray that that is the heart of each one of us this morning. To run faithfully. To finish well. To earn the crowns. Lay up for yourselves treasures. In heaven, where moth and rust do not corrupt, these things cannot be taken away from us. And when we get there and we hear the creatures falling down, we see them bowing down at the feet of the throne. That's our cue. And we will cast our crowns that we've earned on earth back at his feet. Because if it wasn't for him, 
we wouldn't even be there. And there's one more thing that stands out to me about this whole scene that we have. Did you notice the order of things? This isn't a chaotic scene. Although it's insane, it's not chaotic. Everything has a place. Everything has its order. And I think that we would do well to pay attention to that as a church. In the throne of God, everything has order. We don't hear one of the creatures standing up saying, Hallelujah! But in their proper place, they glorify God. In their proper place, they give him the worship that he is due. And there's systematic, orderly chain of events. There is order. And I can't wait to see how well John did it describing this. Now, I am so excited to get to see this throne room. Now, I could care less about seeing the White House, to be honest with you. you know, I am ready to see this throne. And we see in Hebrews that this is the anchor of our souls. You know, we think of an anchor as being on a ship, who's being tossed at sea. They throw the anchor down, and it keeps them in place. But there's one distinct difference between our anchor and a ship's anchor. The ship anchors down, and we anchor up. We are anchored up to this throne room. That is the blessed hope that we have in Christ. We get to see our Creator. We don't know what that will be like yet, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall see him as he actually is because we will be like him. What a blessed hope. Can we live our lives in light of this fact this week? Is that something we can do? Because this week, although it's been a tough week, this has certainly helped push me through it as I'm studying through this, um, just really wrestling with it. Because it is tough, and there's a lot of opinions surrounding these things. But when we're anchored up, everything kind of falls into place. All the priorities, everything that you've got going on, all of us have too much going on. They all kind of settle into their proper place when we look at this throne room of the universe. We'll close our study there this morning, and we'll pick up in chapter 5. Keep in mind that chapter 5 is a continuation of this vision, this experience that John is having. It's a continuation. There is no chapter break when John is writing this. So I'm excited to get back in, and I'll actually assign you two bits of homework. Read chapter 5. Just familiarize yourself with chapter 5 and also read the book of Ruth and consider what the book of Ruth has to do with chapter 5 in Revelation. And we'll take a slight detour into Ruth next week and we'll get some background on what we see unfold in chapter 5. So, to see you all for that one. Let's close our study in a word of prayer.